0: You're so much more than just the taxi that takes them places. They want to do things. And, you know, I learned this now, even with my stepdaughter, like she's playing volleyball, she wants to play volleyball, but she also comes home and wants us to practice with her in the driveway or in the backyard. And it's like, we are so much more than just showing up and cheering for you. Like we may not know a lot about volleyball, but we know how to toss a ball and let her bump it back or set it back to us. And, you know, we'll figure out what we're supposed to do, but You are so much more than the taxi that just takes some places, and the investment that you give
1: ends up paying off dividends for your kids as well. Hey, I'm Ashley Agle. Some of you might know me as Ashley Burkhart, and I'm a former D1 and professional softball player who spent a few years coaching in the college game before deciding to put all of my focus into youth softball players and helping them make their dreams and their goals happen for them. It's our job to help them unleash their potential and become the athletes they've always dreamt of. I come from a small city in the Midwest and didn't let that stop me from making my goal of playing D1 softball a reality. No matter where you live, you have the tools to help you thrive, and I am hoping through this podcast to help you get there. On this podcast, you'll learn from Olympians, Hall of Fame coaches, and elite players what their journeys have been like, and you'll also learn from me and my family a bit of our journey through the game. I'm so excited to have you here, so whip out your notebook and let's learn how we can grow in this game together. Welcome to When the Cleats Come Off. Hey there, and welcome back, or welcome to When the Cleats Come Off. Kat Osterman is back for a two part, jam packed couple of episodes, and the amount of mic drop moments Kat gives is what makes me so excited (laughs) to deliver these next two episodes to you. Not only is she a new mom, but she's also newly retired and coaching Travel Ball. And of course, focusing a lot of her work on pitchers, which brings a whole new perspective of hers to the podcast that I cannot wait to share with you. If you remember back in season one, episode 51 to be exact, called Greatness Has No Age Limit, we chatted about all things Olympics as she was about to compete for one final run at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Having confidence and having good presence on the mound was a topic we talked about, how she fell in love with the process and her training to become one of the greatest pitchers to ever compete in our game. And we also chatted a little bit about her travel ball and collegiate experience at the University of Texas, where she was a four-time All-American. You can either listen to this episode and then go back to that one, or pause, hit up that episode, and come back to this one. That was an epic conversation about how serious Kat takes her game and her training, and there's a ton you can learn from that conversation. Now, in these next two weeks, get ready for some huge topics we discuss like her incredible relationship with her dad and how he helped instill confidence in her, his approach to helping her train at home, what their car ride home conversations looked like, and why this relationship is one of the best foundations she's ever had as a pitcher. Then we talk about her new look into travel ball, what she likes about it, what she definitely doesn't, and how travel ball coaches can help get the most out of their athletes, especially what to say to your pitchers that'll help them reach their potential even under some pressure. And next week, we're going to talk all things recruiting and what you can expect competing at the next level, no matter what level that is. And uh, sprinkled into both of these episodes, we talk a bit about our new babies, (laughs) how retirement has been for her, and what motherhood has been like, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Kat is truly one of my ride-or-die humans right now, not only within the game of softball, but especially since we're figuring out this new game of motherhood together, it's been a fun. I really think this might be one of the most passionate and enlightening conversations we've had yet on the show. Now, let's get to it and bring back three-time Olympian, four-time All-American, and first-time mama, Kat Osterman, back to the show. is back in the house for part two. We we were cut short the first time. We just had to keep going. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. New mama life, right at one out of 10. 10 being like the best thing in the world. One being, I I give up.
0: Oh, geez. Well, I mean, I think there's some days it's a one.
1: <laughs> totally. No,
0: I... Uh... You know, I think if you're going to talk about like the emotional department, it's like totally a ten. Like you just never knew you were going to love something as much as you love your child. Um, and then, you know, as far as difficulty, I mean, definitely there are days that I wish I had uh, about five extra sets of hands. But um, I know I, I wouldn't change yeah. it for the world. To be honest, it's it's been a journey. It's exhausting, but it's the the best journey I think.
1: Yes, hundred percent. Do you think that? how hard playing like you played the game for the majority of your life do you think that kind of prepped you for this a little bit
0: I think a little bit just because you know you can do hard things you know you can function exhausted on little sleep you know all of that I think the only difference is as a player like your training and stuff can be regimented and motherhood is not your your child is on their own schedule and like as much as you try, you're on their schedule because you can plan something and then all of a sudden they decide not to take a nap or they decide they want to eat every hour and a half instead of every two or three hours. And so, yeah, it's just been interesting um, to learn how to uh, kind of adjust on the fly and fit what you need in during nap times, however short or long those are. And yeah, I mean, it's it's an adjustment, but I do think it equips me knowing I can do hard things and that I can function um, even when the energy levels are low.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. The The days where you're like, I have a to-do list of five things and you get half of one done, you have to be able to mm-hmm. be like, but that's okay.
0: <laughs> 100%. I've started like, instead of trying to tackle the whole to-do list, I had to start figuring out, okay, what's the priority? So that way, that way when nap time number one hit, I got those priorities done. So I wasn't looking going at nine o'clock at night being like, man, I have to get this done some point today when at nine o'clock most time I want to go to bed. Um, so yeah, nap time number one is usually either a a workout or b um, if there's work stuff to get done. The uh, you know the priorities for that.
1: Facts, facts. Now I do want to ask you this question too because I know when I stopped playing, it was very hard to adjust. And I mean, now you're a mom, but <laughs> that's a whole another adjustment. But how is retirement going for you? Because I know I I struggled with the identity of like I'm a softball player to like. Not anymore. How's it? How's that going? You
0: know, I think I was prepared because I had retired once before. As funny as that is to <laughs> miss. Um you
1: had a trial run. Yeah, I had a
0: trial run. Cause in 2015, when I retired, I did. Like I woke up the next day feeling like basically I'd gone through the worst breakup of my life. Mm. You know, um, played our last game at the NPF Championships, flew home the next morning at like 7:30 or something like that. Pretty much laid in bed all day until. Well, Joey was my boyfriend then, but till him and Bracken came home because they were on a later flight and just like felt like depressed, like didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And so this time it's going, I think, because I knew I was 100 percent ready. Um, and I think a lot of people are like, how did you know that? And um, as much as I enjoyed playing in Tokyo wow. and training up to Tokyo towards the end, the training and the preparation, which is usually the fun part, because you get to push yourself, you get to see you know, how far you can stretch yourself that just started kind of feeling like a chore. And so I knew the second that it felt like a chore to do it, I was done and I was gonna be done after Tokyo anyways. Um, But at the same time, just, you know, I think my capacity to wanna continue to play at the high level, as much as it's fun competing, um, it takes a lot to stay there the older you get. And I think that's what people don't realize is like the older you get, you less off days because you have to keep moving because if you stop moving, um, then it's harder to get back into the routine. And so, you know, it's been pretty good. Obviously I put some things in place knowing I was going to retire and, um, have still been around the game just enough that it' enjoyable. But you know, I haven't, everyone's like, well, last time you threw a bullpen, I was like, whatever it was pregame, September 27th of 21 is the last time I threw a pitch other than, you know, occasionally just trying to, uh, either a throw out a first pitch or demonstrate some basic mechanics to some pitchers.
1: Yeah. That's so nice that you were able to kind of like know and understand yourself well enough to say, you know, I can be done. And like, I think that's something that I think we all can listen to is, you know, if you feel like the passion of the preparation is gone, I mean, it's not like you'll peak ever again. Like, you know, like it's, when do you feel like you did peak? Because I did talk to Tasha about this and she said that she peaked at the age of 27, which like blew my mind as like, I think I was 21 hearing that. Do you think you had a a point where you feel like you peaked as a pitcher?
0: Yeah. um, I can't remember which season it was in the MPF. Maybe 12, either 12 or 13. Um, I went undefeated. I think I was 18 and 0. And, um, but I was throwing some of my best games. And so it was later. It was 26. And mine might've been 26, 26 or 27, Mm -hmm. Um, but it definitely was finally the time that, you know, I think we truly understood, I understand our bodies. Um, you know, I think it's, it's not a whole lot different than males in the fact that, you know, they go play MLB and they peak later. Um, mm-hmm. As females, it's the same way. We just don't have the opportunity for everyone to see that there's a peak later. And most of totally. us aren't able to financially keep going to where you get to that peak. Um, you know, you get through the two or three years after college and... Then you have to financially figure out how to keep going, and if you can't make ends meet and play pro, you you give it up. Really, probably before you hit your peak. So it definitely was twenty somewhere between twenty six and twenty eight. Um, and you just saw like, you know, everything hit stride from your strength and conditioning to like totally you feel it affect you um, to be able to you know just in game management, all of the things that start to click.
1: Yeah. And to even, even think about the fact that, you know, so many don't get seen even after college. Like you it's crazy to think that these all Americans in college could get even better. Like it's, it just blows, blows my mind. Yeah. What were the things like, like in college, obviously you were a stud. <laughs> um, but how was it different? Like, Obviously, when you're older, maybe maybe physically you can't do as like as much as you were pressured to do in college. But like, what was was it the mentality mostly that changed for you when you peaked? Um. Well, I think it's mentality as well
0: as like being able to. You can train like you train individually. Like I and I remember um, probably I don't know no I think it was the 08 quad. So it was after I was done in college. But I remember we were strength and conditioning and we were on the road somewhere and we were using a college gym. And I just remember I looked at our strength and conditioning guy and was like, you know, why don't we power clean? And he was like, we don't need to power clean. I'm like, okay, then why do we power clean in college? And he's like, because in college, you have time constraints. And so to power clean is the quickest way to get a lot of muscle groups. He goes, but ideally, if we have all the time in the world that we need to be in the weight room, we don't need to power clean. We can do all these other exercises that hit those muscle groups better. And that's when I was like, hmm. So in college, it's like, yes, we strengthen conditioning, but at a almost generic programming or a not as elaborate programming because of time, because, you know, mm. in 20 hours a week and games are three hours and then you coaches want as much time on the field and less time in the weight room. So you have, you know, maybe an hour. And so for everyone to get the lifts in and the conditioning you need, they, they have to find the, the best way to maximize their time, which is not probably not 10 different lifts. It's probably six to seven different lifts and let's do a power clean. That's going to get a lot of muscle groups, even though sport specific um, it's not the same. And so I think, you know, the first probably four or five years of pro ball, I didn't really strength condition a whole lot. Um, I ran long distances because I like to do that. But when I finally hooked up with a trainer and was like, okay, I want to do this hundred percent all in. It was crazy how good I felt and how strong I felt being able to do lifts that broke up the muscle groups as opposed to just the big ones. And, uh, you know, I think that plays into it. But then the mentality piece is, is too, a big thing. Like you get, you know, you gain confidence, even if you were confident coming into pro ball, you gain confidence the longer you're successful in it. You also know what it takes to prepare. You know, the first couple of years in pro ball, you're just trying not to sink, trying to keep up with the schedule and everything like that. And then, uh, you know, at the same time, you start to gather information on hitters and, and other teams and being able to implement that year in and year out. So, it all takes adds up, but I think the individual piece of being able to train truly with what your body needs was probably the number one thing that allowed me to physically peak because I felt I I felt so good. Like even after games, like my soreness was minimum, I was able to recover and I was able to be ready whether it was the next day or a couple of days later.
1: That's so nice. You kind of like built a routine for yourself. That's amazing. Now, when it comes to that confidence piece, I know when it came down to like doing hard things, my dad was a big influence on my life. And the last conversation we had together, um, you, you we had vaguely mentioned your dad, but I want to dive into this relationship because a lot of parents are listening. Some parents are coaches and they they want to do what's best for their athlete. But like some are scared to push them. Some are scared that they're pushing them too much. Like, What was that like with you and your dad as a pitcher?
0: Yeah, so... You know, I think it started with the first thing was, you know, my dad really wanted me to try every sport. So I did. Um, Basketball was his love. You know, the running joke in the family is that he never got his college basketball player. And unfortunately, I probably was the closest one to that too, um, as I played basketball all the way through high school. But anytime I took up a sport, he was like, okay, we're going to learn. We're going to learn it and we're going to learn how to do things right. You know, so I knew how to play basketball. I knew how to dribble with both hands, you know, way ups, eventually a jump shot. And anytime I did anything, it was like, okay, let's learn about it. And so when I started softball, I didn't start pitching. Um, I basically decided to pitch because little league, we, you know, we ran out of innings with our pitchers. Yeah, that's funny, isn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. And needed someone to throw and I tried it and I loved being in the circle. And I asked him for lessons for my 11th birthday And he gave them to me. And from that on, he was, he was my catcher. Um, And I think the big thing is other than reiterating what my pitching coach said, he didn't try to coach me more than what we learned each week. And so that was the first piece was we were going to learn correctly. And he was going to just make sure he reiterated whatever my pitching coach said. And then from there, it became kind of a, he held me accountable, um, first and foremost, which I think is a big thing that I don't want to say is lacking, but I don't see as much of. It's like parents want their kids to be so good but and pay, they'll pay for lessons. But it's like, are they practicing at home in between lessons? You know, yeah. You're not supposed to pay for two and three lessons a week. You're supposed to pay to do it, go home and practice it so you know how to do it and then come back so you can build on that. And um, when I, we started lessons consistently, that was kind of the rule that was the rule Mm -hmm. was I had to practice at home in order for him to pay for my lesson at the end of the week. And if I didn't practice at home, um, you know, and started like, it started like twice a week. And obviously the older you get, the longer it goes, um, the more you get into it, you know, you have to practice more to know, to, to master your skills. And so, so yeah, I mean, I think the big thing was I had to, I had to practice in order to get my lessons. And if I didn't, I wasn't going to get a lesson and I never didn't, I never wanted to go a week without a lesson so practicing wasn't something I was forced to do as far as he didn't come home and nag me. Um, you know, I tell people all the time in however many years I pitched with him, probably close to 10 to 15, there were never time I could count on one hand the amount of times he said I had to practice that I originally wasn't going to. And sometimes it was scheduling, like, hey, no, you need to practice today because I'm going out of town for work tomorrow or hey remember you want to do this you know on friday so you need to practice today that kind of thing but he held me accountable in that in that sense and um the other piece is i got to watch him you know he's an engineer um which is this is before you know all the computer programs and everything so this is someone who was drawing out designs of oil rigs and stuff like that and then having to go overseas and or i should say offshore and see them designed. It wasn't like click the button here and a line's drawn. Like he had to draw it straight himself. And, um, just watching him work, um, that work ethic kind of spilled over to me and the fact that he prioritized my pitching. Um, we lived close enough to that art to his work where, you know, if I wanted, once I got to high school, if I wanted to go to a men's basketball game or volleyball when I wasn't playing, you know, something like that, I could call and be like, Hey, can you meet me at home after school? We can pitch real quick and then I can go do what I want to do. And he'd come home for 45 minutes and then go back to work because he lived close, we lived close enough. And him prioritizing that made me want to make sure that when we did spend time together, um, pitching in the driveway was maximized. And um, so from him, you know, work ethic and priority, prioritizing things were the two that I took the most. Um, but the other thing that stands out to me about my dad is I don't really remember too many of those bad car rides home. Um, I think a lot of people talk, you know, oh my dad pushes me, push-. my dad pushed me, but not to the fact that when I lost a game, I was scared to get in the car. You know, if I there's a handful I can think of, and it, but it wasn't performance-based, it was like my attitude was bad or my reaction to something, or I was a sassy little kid, I probably you know, sassed back at him at some point or something. And so I would get in trouble for those things. Um, But I specifically remember and know that, you know, so many of our conversations were, what can we learn from what just happened? My first year at 18U, um, we went to Colorado for the first time with the Katie Cruisers. And at the time, handing Batbusters was the it team. Um, They had Kira Garrell who was going to UCLA, Jamie Clark, who was going to Washington, um, I think Dana Sorensen who ended up at Stanford, you know, we're all on that team and had just come home from like the junior world championships, which I didn't even know what that was at the time. Um, and we played them and we lost one, nothing in extra innings. And, you know, I wanted to win so bad. Cause here I am this like youngster playing against the it team for the first time. And I came off in tears and I was just like, so distraught that we lost. And then I looked at my dad and I was like, I need another pitch. Cause I was only a rise ball pitcher at this point. Um, fast change and rise. And I was like, by the end of the game, they knew what I was going to throw. And, you know, I think they, we went into ITB, they bunted and got a sack fly. It's not even like I gave up a home run. Um, but I was like, they knew what I was going to throw when they were able to, you know, expect it. And I just remember him understanding why I was crying. He looked at me, he was just like, I'm really proud of you. You're not wrong. We need to work on something else, but you have no reason to like be upset or disappointed in yourself and i look at that moment just to s- reiterate that he was always in my corner of how are we going to continue to get better um but without being the gloating dad cuz he was by no means if you asked him i wasn't very good <laughs> i mean same um, same <laughs> i mean i have my grandma saved emails and printed off message boards when those first started and anytime anyone congratulated my dad on a performance of mine or something, he was like, oh, you know, thanks. She had a really good outing, but, you know, he's just still didn't ever think I was like that good. Um, and so I think that might've actually weighed in my favor. I wasn't the best thing since sliced bread and I wasn't trying to win my dad's approval, but him knowing that we had more room to grow made me want to grow. And, you know, the same time we set goals, I remember... And everyone laughs at it. But there was a point in time where there was a pitcher that was a couple years older than me and she had verbaled to Texas. And I remember, you know, asking my dad if he thought I could be that good. And he said, yeah, I think so. And I said, all right, well, my goal is I want to be able to at least walk on at Texas. Like I want to go there. I want to be able to walk on at Texas. And, you know, obviously three and a half, four years later, it's a completely different story. And I was able to (laughs) essentially pick where I wanted to go to school But having that goal and him not saying, Oh, I think you're going to be better than that. Like him just saying, okay, let's work to that goal. And obviously, you know, I don't know at what point was I good enough to really that to be able to be where I like, but we just kept working until the recruiting process came around. So, you know, I think if people learn anything from mine and my dad's relationship, it's you don't have to, you don't have to, be so tough on your kids that there's tears all the time. I'm not going to say there weren't bullpens and stuff that there were tears. There absolutely were, but it doesn't have to be all the time and really just go to work with your kid. I mean, my dad wanted to work with me when we learned spins. It was like, okay, what is a true spin? We're going to work really hard to get to that spin. And you know, we, he, I threw with a line ball. So if he said the line was off, I couldn't argue because you can sit there and see the line. Um, Mm -hmm. He didn't let me settle for oh okay that was good enough because it moved and it hit a spot but it could have it could have spun better but we're going to accept that like no i had to try to spin it better and um yeah and not in the way that i was like it's impossible and i'm crying it was just like okay that can happen like let's figure out how to make it happen and you know obviously then he learned the game with me too but i think right now we want to expect so much out of kids but instead of helping them and working with them. It's like, let me hand them off to somebody else and pay for it. And really they have to have somebody at home that's going to help them and work with them too. Um, It's just part of it. Cause you can go to lessons all the time, but your kids then not learning and working on their own of like, what does that feel like? Um, You know, mom or dad video me and let's see what it looks like. You know, I have home video somewhere on a VHS, but um, there's some from when I was. Oh, we gotta whip those out. <laughs> I know. I need somebody to put them on DVDs, or I don't even know what you, what to put them on now these days because I feel like DVD players are out too. You know, we did all the things. The handheld. I mean, there's a social media post somewhere, and I'm pitching, and my dad, my dad's actually holding the camera, and my uncle's catching me. But it's like the handheld camera with the little screen that flips out, and you know, yep. But that's what we did to watch and see what mechanics were, but you know, I think my dad was my rock for so long. Um, Just the person I learned how to work from, but there was never a day that I thought my performance ever would result in him loving me more or less. And I think that's, Mm. that's the big thing. Mine and his relationship and my, my role as his daughter didn't change based on how I was as a softball player. You know, now the older I got, if we were going to go out and practice, we were going to have intent and focus and purpose and we weren't going to waste time. And, you know, you learned things as you grew older, where when you were 10 and 11, it was for fun and let's learn it. But I don't know that there's ever a day that I felt like my softball performance disappointed him.
1: Wow. Wow. I knew how to work from him. Wow. Um, There are so many incredible gems from what you just mentioned. One that really stuck out to me was that it didn't sound like he, well, you said he didn't force you to do anything. Everything came from you. But I am a firm believer in in this because our stories are very similar here. When I wanted to get good at something, he was going to get as good as he could at that thing. And he was going to help learn. We were watching YouTube videos. Yep. I remember he would come to my lessons and he would be in the cage next to us literally doing the same drill so he could like learn how to instruct it. Yeah. But like I think because our dads were in our corner like that it made us more hungry like to see how good we could truly get and like I'm sure you would believe this if you if you didn't have him in your corner you wouldn't have gotten anywhere close to where you could have because you would have been like all on your own. Yeah. And I don't I don't think I don't think parents look at it that way. I think more parents should see the power of doing it together. Like, you guys will grow so much more. And I say you guys because you are a team, like, parents and even your coach, like, you guys are a team. Yeah. And the are, way your athlete is going to react, what were you going to say?
0: You're so much more than just the taxi that takes them places. Yeah. They w- want to do things. And, you know, I learned this now even with my stepdaughter. Like, she's playing volleyball. She wants to play volleyball, but she also comes home and wants us to practice with her in the driveway. Or in the backyard. And it's like, we are so much more than just showing up and cheering for you. Like, we may not know a lot about volleyball, but we know how to toss a ball and let her bump it back or set it back to us. And, you know, we'll figure out what we're supposed to do. But you are so much more than the taxi that just takes some places. And the investment that you give ends up paying off dividends for your kids as well. Mm hmm.
1: And I'm sure you're asking Bracken, like, what are the what are the drills that you're learning? Like, let's do the ones that you're learning, and she can like teach you the drill, and then you can help her perform it. Like, I think that's another accountability piece that like she can she can own this, she can own it, but you're just there to do whatever it is that she needs from you. Yeah, hundred percent.
0: Like yeah. I don't have to drive it, and I don't say, hey, let's go outside and play volleyball. But when she says, hey, I want to go outside and play volleyball, okay, let's put shoes on. One of us will put our shoes on. It may not be me that day because I may be taking care of JC or something else, but one of us will be like, okay, put our shoes on. Let's go out for 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, whatever it is.
1: Yeah. And it's so funny. I never thought about it this way, but a lot of kids or a lot of parents are like, how do I get my kid to want to play and want to practice? I'm like, you go do it with them and have fun with it. Yeah. Like if you can make it a positive experience when you're practicing from home, they're going to want to do it more. Right. And now it's like you said, it's not always that. Like sometimes like you're in tears because you're like you can't figure this thing out. But again, you're doing it together. You're doing it together. Like you're crying together, you are doing great things together, but like I think that's what it takes. It's like make the environment for them fun, yeah. especially at a younger age. For sure. Like, that's what it's all about. Man, this was fun. Okay, if you're loving this, I have to tell you about my Goal Smasher Confidence course. It is $7 for a reason. I want everybody to get their hands on this. I share 14 days, which are 14 different exercises, plus some bonus ones, of 30-minute exercises you can do every single day to help with your confidence. Some of the things you're learning right here on this episode but there's more. There's 14 other exercises that I came up with during COVID that you, know, you don't need anything but yourself and probably a piece of paper to accomplish to be able to boost your confidence. So if you wanna hear more about that senior season that I talk about so often that was just lights out for me and ways that helped me get there and overcome adversity that year, you can find that in the course and a bunch of other tricks that I learned from this book and sports psychologists and mental performance coaches to help me overcome doubt, fear, and uncertainty, which we all find ourselves in so that you can play at your best when your best is needed. So if you have season coming up, now is the perfect time to get your hands on this and devote 30 minutes a day to this. I'm telling you, this is way more fun than homework (laughs) because it's, it's softball. It's your thing. It's, it's what you love to do. And I guarantee if you take this course and you take it and actually do the exercises, you will boost not just your confidence, but you'll be able to uplift those around you and play your best when your best is needed. So if you're interested in the course, head to www.ashleybtraining.com or go to the link in the show notes, which is easier probably. And go to Goal Smasher and go check out this course. And again, it's $7. I don't plan on changing the price of it because I want everybody to get their hands on it and reap the rewards that this course can have for you. All right, so head to www.ashleybetraining.com, head to the Goal Smasher Confidence Course and get your hands on this course. I promise you will not regret it. Okay, let's talk about travel ball. So you have your hands in so many projects, like you're a saint, like you're doing so much. Um, But you have your hands in the travel ball world with the Bombers. And I think you probably have great perspective on, you know, what it looks like good and what it looks like not so good. So I think like there's definitely extremes on both sides. Like we know, like there's some great coaches out there. There are some that are like, you know, instilling things into their kids that like fear of fear of failing is like heightened. So what are some things that, well, first of all, what made you get into travel ball? Cause I, I almost refused to. <laughs> yeah,
0: it wasn't, um, it wasn't my original plan to actually be coaching in it. So when COVID happened and I was stepping down at Texas state, I had told Scott, um, Smith, our director, um, for the bombers that, you know, Hey, it was kind of a secret. I hadn't told everybody yet but that I was going to be stepping down, um, at the end of the school year. And, um, you know, if he had clinics or anything I could help with, let me know. And he basically was like, well, let's talk. We can create a director of pitching performance role. And I think I'm still kind of defining what that role means. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of times I watch at least our Academy pitchers. So from 14, you up over time and kind of help where, where are they going to fit the best in our Academy? Um, which pitchers should come up to play for Scott and I, you know, I wasn't coaching him with him originally. And then his pitch caller of, I want to say 20 years, um, decided he was going to take a break. So when he was going to take a break, Scott said, Hey, how about you come coach with me? And I was like, I was trying to avoid this. Um, But I loved, I love being on the field with girls and especially pitchers and what's the better place, the best place to learn, not the mechanics of pitching, but how to actually pitch and execute your pitches then in game. And so now I can be there and, you know, successful or not successful talk through maybe why we sequence pitches some way or um, why a sequence didn't work. Occasionally, you know, I'll take a gamble and it won't work and I'll tell them that's on me. Like, and then when we come off, I say, you know, this is what I tried to do. It didn't work. So we're not going to do that again. So I eventually got in it just because I kind of missed being on the field. And it gave me a chance to do that and with elite pitchers who were going to go to the next level and, you know, play. And I think I wanted to be able to get them ready to play in college since I had been there for 12 years and coaching college pitchers. So it's like I know what it takes mentally, physically, emotionally. Um, So why not give them a head start prior to going to school? So. Um, that's kind of how I got into it. I am enjoying it. It's, it's a lot of weekends away and now with her, it's a little bit harder, but thankfully there's a village to take care of her. So Mm -hmm. we travel and we go, we're going to go down to Houston this weekend actually, and she's going to come and just me and her. So our parents are going to help take care of her while we play. But, you know, I think you say what's good and bad. And I think the biggest thing I've learned with travel ball is you have to remember what the ultimate goal is. Um, you know, Yes, you play in national tournaments, and it's great to win those. But at the end of the day, if the team I'm playing for wins a national championship, you're not judging my worth as a coach based on the fact that we just won a national championship. Like, is it cool for our kids? Yeah, it is. But, like, no one's saying, oh, she's a better travel ball coach because you won a nationals. Mm-hmm. Like, our goal is to develop and get them ready for whatever the next level looks for like for them. And if that means... D1 softball, great. If it's D2, D3, JUCO, AIA, that level. And occasionally you'll have a kid that's may not decide to play at all, but you know what? It's getting them ready for life. Yeah. Like go learn how to balance a schedule at college and go learn how to, you know, maybe you're not going to play, but you're going to get into student government or something like that. And you're still going to be as crazy busy, but like, let's equip them to be young women who, who are ready to go off to college and, not necessarily have to call mom and dad every single day, 10 times a day to figure out how to do laundry and things like this, like empower them to, to know how to do things. And I think sometimes that's kind of the last, the last piece is what is, what's the mission statement of travel law. It's for these girls to be able to develop as young women and empower them to believe that they can achieve goals and then equip them to be able to go off and achieve whatever the next step looks like for them.
1: Right. Right. Can we put that on a t-shirt? Like that's gotta be the new, the new rule. How lucky your kids are to be able to to work under you. Cause you've, you've played at that level. You've coached at college. Like you've, you've done all the things and now you get to share a little pieces of knowledge. What are some things? Cause obviously you probably work mostly with pitchers. What are some of those ways that you're, you know, helping them prepare for not just like to be a great and elite pitcher. Cause everybody can go listen to our last conversation about how to have a good mindset on in the, on the mound. But like, how are you helping them get through hard things? Like if you see a pitcher struggling, what are you doing?
0: And you know, I think it's, and I had one of those this last summer, Um, came off a high school season that wasn't very successful. Confidence was at an all time low. The first is getting them to to understand like, it's okay to admit that to me right now. It doesn't mean I'm not going to trust you in the circle but you and I need to figure out how do we work to get you back to being you. Um, So we had that conversation and I said, cool, you know what we're going to start with? We're going to start with one inning. I want you to have one really good inning and I don't care how good it is. I'm going to take you out because we're going to end on a high. And I was like, okay. And then the next time out, you're going to have two innings. And even if you're rolling, I'm going to take you out. So we end on a high. I'm not going to let us get to the point where we say, oh no, here it comes. Yeah. Um, And so... You know, I I had the benefit that we had some opportunities to do that with her. And then later on, she ends up throwing a phenomenal, it ended up only being a four inning game, but it was a phenomenal four inning game against a good team. And at the beginning of the summer, I'm not 100% sure that she was in the headspace to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's, I think a lot of times they think, they really think that those of us that played at the elite level don't struggle or didn't struggle. And it's like, there is not a single athlete out there that is going to tell you they went through their entire career, never struggling.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, I don't, I don't know if I've shared it on the last time we talked or not, but like Randy reps freshman year at Texas state, there was a tournament where, you know, I thought she probably would have done a little bit better. And I think she expected better out of herself. We lost, I think two games in a row. We have a fundraiser or a, I should say dinner dinner to honor our donors and, um, she's in tears in the bathroom. And finally I said, Randy, you know what? Go to Texas's website, go Google 2002 and go to like February and go read about my first tournament. She was like, what? And I go, go read about my first tournament. She was like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm pretty sure I left there with, I I know it was double digits ERA. I really think it was like a 14 ERA, but I was like, go read. And she was like, well, what do you mean? And finally, you know, I think I might've ended up finding it, but I was like, I left there with a double digit ERA, Randy, and was still an All-American by the end of the year. I said, so the struggle isn't the fact that this is how everything's going to continue to go. But I share that with her to be like, hello, we all struggle. So your struggle's normal. So let's normalize struggling first. And then from there, let's talk about what's the best way for us to get out of it. You know, sometimes they're in a mindset where, yes, they're struggling, but they want to work through the hard. Sometimes they're in a mindset that they can't work through the hard right now and they're right then. And you have to build the confidence. Um, and so I think the first thing is just, you know, identifying to them that struggle happens. Sometimes, you know, your body just all of a sudden hits a wall and you may be, normally throw 65 and now you're throwing 61 and you don't know why. Well, let's work on some recovery and maybe we don't throw as much or our warm up shortens or you know what, if I don't have to use you in a day, I won't, even though I normally split games. But just normalizing the struggle and letting them talk through it. Because I think so many times they start to struggle and we just say, work through it, keep going. It's like, they don't know how. If you don't help them through it, they don't know how to just keep going without that mindset of, here we go again, Mm -hmm. like clicking. And so I think that's the big thing that I kind of try to get them to think about is What are we struggling with? Because we're not struggling all the all the way around usually. Like it's, you know, usually one pitch, or maybe our spots are a little bit off or something like that. What are we struggling with? How can we fix that? And then mentally, what where are we at on the scale of doomed to, you know, I know I can work through it, I just haven't yet. Mm -hmm. And and figure out with that mentality, okay, are we gonna let ourselves get try to work out of a situation or are we gonna get out before the situation's too sticky? And I think as coaches, that's, that's part of our job, even at the college level, is yes, you want them to work through it, but it doesn't mean every time they get in a sticky situation, you force them to continue to go. Because the more we force them to do something, it's not helping them because they're looking and stressing and internally probably tensed up and thinking, if I don't do this, I'm never going to throw again. Or if I don't do this, I'm not going to get opportunities against good teams and things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. So... I can just imagine you like being a coach. I'm pretending like I'm a pitcher. And like, when you come out to the mound and you just don't know what your pitcher's thinking, because I feel like a lot of times when a coach comes out, it's like, let's just figure out what page she's on, right? What are the things that, are you cracking jokes up there? Are you like keeping it simple? Like, are what are the the cues that you start off with when you when you go to the circle?
0: You know, I think it depends on the pitcher. Yeah, I have to know them. Um, and that's kind of part of it in the fall, it's nice to see them all throw and, and get out and talk to them. And I mean, there have been times where I do go out and crack the joke. Um, You know, I had a picture we were trying to get her to work through things and she was in a place she could, and she had given up, I think, two home runs in an inning and she's just panicking, looking at me. And I said, Hey, you want to try to tie my record? I gave up three in an inning twice. And they like, look at me. And I'm like, it happens. Like, it's okay. Like let's come back down to earth and reset. You know, we're not, we're not falling off the wagon. Um, And then there's other times where I go out and I just say, I'm like, Hey, talk to me. Like, what are we thinking? What are we feeling? You know, the catcher will come out. What does she look like? And usually I try to get the pitcher to talk. And most of them will, because they know at some point I've already had conversations with them where, you know, I don't need you to tell me you're fine if you're not, Yeah. because you're not going to help our team. And in the long run, you're not going to help any team. If you continue to just say, I'm fine when you're not. So if I come out and you need to come out because headspace, you can't reset, Let's go. You know what? If you get in a spot later in the game where you're reset and I can use you again, I'll put you in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a lot of times going out and just letting them talk. They want they want to hear what I have to say, but they know I want to know where they are first, right? And so, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's just, "Hey, talk to me. Where you at?" Or occasionally, if I see their routine becoming quicker, I'll call time and I'll be like, "Okay, you're rushing. So, what are we thinking?" You're not in your normal rhythm, you know, so something's going on. And you know, most of the time they'll be like, Yeah, well, you know, I know this girl. And like, okay, let's take a deep breath. We know this hitter. That's a great thing for you. Okay. So so what that she's hit your curveball to the left center gap twice. That means we're not going to throw a curveball for a strike to her, doesn't it? Like we can still use your curveball, but we just gotta be smarter. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I mean, a lot of times I just try to let them initiate the conversation and then go from there occasionally you know you call time because either a you don't want to hit throw to a hitter or b i have a game plan that i just really want them to know um that's how we're going to execute it um but most of the time you know i go out let them talk and then before i leave i let them pick like what pitch are we going with next i want you to be convicted in the pitch right now so you have an extra 30 seconds while i go over there to the bucket to set yourself up to say okay this pitch is going to be a strike and it's going to get executed mm-hmm. um And I think that – I like that just because it does. It lets them only focus on the next pitch. And I do. I say, you know, what do you want? They'll be like, curveball. All right, throw a curveball for a strike. Then we'll worry about the pitch after that. After that, Yeah. Like, we're not worried about two pitches from now. Just go get this strike, and then let's go. Then we'll move on.
1: Yeah. I like how you let them kind of work this out. And I like that you give her the floor. You know, like, we don't want to train our athletes to have to rely on you for a game plan. Right. Like we want to be able to train our athletes to work through things. And we're kind of just like the sounding board. Like, what do you think? Like, what do you want to throw here? And like, that's empowering. If you're like, "Eh, I mean, my rise ball feels okay. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah, perfect. Let's run with it.
0: And I think that's the thing is like so many, and that's probably one downfall of travel ball in some organizations, not all, is they're just robots. Yeah. It's just, I'm going to throw what you call and that's it. Um, you know, as base runners, I'm only gonna I'm only gonna move, you know, up 60 feet if you tell me to. And it's too or late. If I know that the ball's past the catcher, yeah. yeah. Or if I know the ball's past the catcher, like I'm not reading change up or I'm not reading it short hopping, you know, things like that. And then they get to college level where you have to have some instinctual part of the game and they don't have it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I think some of that too, though, is generationally, I also don't think they're outside playing as much as we were. You're right. You know, I mean playing kickball is not much different than playing softball is when you talk about running bases and trying to get an extra base before someone can throw a ball at you. So I think that piece kind of takes out some of the instincts that we probably had as kids as well, Mm -hmm. because you knew some basics of things by going out and playing in the neighborhood with the other neighborhood boys and girls. So I think it's trying to get them to not be robots and think for themselves. And at the same time, you know, and I just talked to a college coach yesterday who was like, I have a freshman who was calling shaking off pitches in their scrimmage, the first scrimmage she's ever thrown in college. And she's shaking off pitching coach already. But what she threw was successful. And the point was, she know when she shakes off and goes with the pitch that she thinks is going to be successful, you're getting her best on that pitch, mm. which is what you want. Yeah. So to sit there and be like, no, you can't shake off, or don't let them think through things themselves you're not allowing them to be fully invested in the pitch they're throwing either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I tell mine all the time, there's occasionally I try to experiment with a pitch and I'm like, Hey, let me know. And I, I call it in. And if they are okay with experimenting with it, they throw it. If not, they shake off. And I say, okay, then you two go like throw what what you want, but to let them have that freedom to kind of have an idea of what they want to throw and be invested in it is huge. And I think, I mean, that can be applied to all parts of the game, but we're not out here to make robots. We're we should be making players that can understand and think the game and then execute it with their skill set to the best of their ability.
1: Yeah. Which le- leads me to something I was just thinking about. And it's it's about, you know, that stuff's got to be learned early, you know? Like you shouldn't be having to teach that to a 16, 17, 18-year-old. They should be knowing the game and this the simplicity, not the simplicity, the complexity. Of you know, making decisions for yourself and trusting it and stuff. But I feel like even like at the 10 to 14 new levels, we're just out trying to win. A lot of teams are just trying to win tournaments, but like not grasping that this is all learning.
0: A hundred percent.
1: I think the biggest
0: thing nowadays that you run into with travel ball, and this is the other downfall, is they just want to play. Like you're not playing, you're not paying just to play. You're supposed to be paying coaches to help your daughter develop. Mm-hmm the only way she's not going to only develop at lessons with a hitting coach. So if you never practice as a team or you practice very rarely as a team, how do you think you're going to execute the plays in a game that you're supposed to know? Yeah. If you're not practicing. Right. And that goes at all levels. I mean, not just, um, 10U, 12U, I mean, 14, 16, 18, same thing. Like if you want to be a good team and a well-oiled machine, you have to practice Mm -hmm. the best team team. In the world, and I'll go on record, I think the 2004 Olympic team might have been the best team ever assembled. And I'm not saying that because I was on it, just the way we worked. That team practiced. We practiced and played together for nine months before going over there. So that way, every possible scenario that we could think of was covered. Like Pitchers even ran to first base like baseball does to cover the base in case... First baseman fell down and second baseman had to fill the ball and all sorts of scenarios. Like we had everything covered. And if you think you're too good to practice, that's where, that's where there's something wrong. And if you think the only way you're going to learn the game is by playing the game again, that's where you're wrong. Um, and I know some parents get it. And I say that because I also am the director of, well, it's the, called the Cat Softball Academy um, powered by RBI Austin and it's a softball academy where we let our RBI girls, um, we select like 18 to 20, 20 of them. And we spend the fall developing as athletes and as people. Um, but last year, all we did was practice. Um, we played a, two like friendlies at home. And then every January, we host what I call an RBI Invitational. We invite Houston and Dallas as RBI teams. And we kind of do a little round robin um, just so we all get to play a little bit. But prior to high school season. But we literally practiced forever and occasionally we'll inter squad or something like that. But we didn't go to tournaments. We are this year just because the kids are starting to get to the age that they need to get in front of some college coaches if they're going to have opportunities. Um, but so many parents were like, We are so happy that you literally just devote so much time to practice. And I was like, Well, if your travel team is literally just playing every weekend and you're never taking a Sunday to have a two, three, four hour practice to go over, all the nuances of our game, how do we expect them to be able to execute them? Not only in this game, but if they never really learn it as they grow in each level. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's kind of what travel balls turned into is how many tournaments can we play? How many teams can we get in a tournament Um, instead of like, let's have quality. And yes, it's, it's unfortunately, yes, it's become a money-making operation and, I get that there's money to be made from tournaments and stuff, but as a team, like prioritize going to, especially before their recruiting age, maybe three, four tournaments in the fall. especially before 14U, where if you have a team that's not in high school yet, so you don't have any high school freshmen that are 14, like then you can play in February, March, and April too. And play once, maybe twice a month and practice two other days. Like you don't have to go play Every weekend, and just be, you know, just never teaching the game other than after an error is made or after the play isn't executed. Mm -hmm. Um, It's
1: too late. We shouldn't have to do that in the middle of a game. You know,
0: no, you know my my little my I say little, but my RBI group is there's 16 you this for this fall, and we're playing in four tournaments, maybe five, and that started last weekend, and we'll go till. December, the the last like travel ball tournament is December 3rd and 4th. So you're talking about half of September, October, November, and the first week of December. So a little over three months and we're going to play in five tournaments or four tournaments. What are we doing the other Sundays? Um, One is off right now. Um, Other than that, we'll be practicing and watching them get better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that's the big thing. Like we, you have to practice to develop, not just play and hope that they develop.
1: Yeah. You see why we needed to hit the pause button, right? I could listen about Kat and her dad's relationship all day long. And I can't believe how similar our dads were. And I didn't even know that until today. There's something to learn about her dad being there for every lesson and learning right alongside her. I absolutely love it. We went in so many different directions in this convo already. And I can't wait to show you what we have up our sleeve next week. We talk all things college and recruiting, like how to find the right fit for you, what it truly takes, truly, (laughs) to compete at the next level. That includes JUCO, NAIA, D3, D2, and D1. Why it, it shouldn't be a D1 or bus mentality for many of us. How to make the recruiting process a bit more fun rather than stressful, and so much more. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you're the first to know when next week's episode drops because believe it or not, this conversation gets better and juicier. We are holding nothing back. And if you love the show, please tell your friends, drop a five-star review and maybe even a written review if you haven't already to help get the word out to more listeners that don't even know that this show exists. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to another episode of When the Cleats Come Off. And I'll see you right here for part two next week. Don't forget to stay awkward, stay humble and keep smiling. I'll see you later.